encouragement to them and be able to kind of hopefully be a stabilizing presence uh, there in their midst. So what we intend, what we plan on doing is we were able to find $49 flights. Can I get an amen? $49 flights into Denver. And I have a friend that's planning a church in Denver. And so we thought we'd go. We'd fly to Denver, encourage him. And then we drove from Denver to Salt Lake. And we took we got up super early and went up north one way and south the other way. No, we'll get up early. This is, how, this is how a man's mind works, you know. We'll get up really early, and getting up really early, we'll be able to kind of sneak in a high, you know, we'll maximize our time, and, and so we did that. So coming back, we went down through the southern part of Utah, and southern Utah, if you're not a national park nerd like I am, you may not realize, is like famous. They have what they call the Big Five, five national parks that are down there in, in southern Utah, and one of those national parks is called Arches National Park, and in Arches National Park, there are 2,000, more than 2,000 natural arches like the one that you see here behind me now. Now, this one is a very particular arch. This is called Delicate Arch, and it's probably the most famous of all the arches. As a matter of fact, if you were to go to Utah today, their license plate dons the Delicate Arch as the backdrop for the license plate. Now, I have seen pictures of the Delicate Arch for as long as I can remember. And when you see it, it really is breathtaking, isn't it? But you know, I always kind of pictured it to be about 10 or 15 feet high, you know, like in my mind. And, and honestly, there was a point, it's, it's like three mile hike in there, and it's a pretty strenuous hike. And you got a couple of Alabama boys, and like our highest point is 2,400 feet on Mount Chihal, you know what I'm talking about? So you're, you're starting at like 6,000 feet, and you're walking and you're climbing, and we're sucking wind. And like, I'm not lying, there's a part where we were climbing up this sheer rock and going, and I, I thought, I've seen pictures, you know? <laughs> like, I've seen pictures, I'll go buy a postcard, like, I don't know. But, so you keep going, and in your mind, in my mind, so I was excited about seeing it, but I really felt like I knew what to expect, like I really felt like I had a good grip on it. I thought it was going to be 10 or 15 feet high, you know, ooh, there it is, let's take the picture and get back. But y'all, we turned the corner. And there it was. And it took my breath away. Like it just makes you get quiet. Because you look and what you see is it's way on top of this peak. And then against this enormous and vast backdrop. That it's not actually 10 or 15 feet. You can actually see there's a man right there. And you can see how much taller. It's more than 50 feet high. It just looks, it's an optical illusion in the pictures that we see because there's such vastness behind it. There's such, the mountain range is so enormous that it actually makes it look small. And so we say it too often, but in this case, it's actually the truth. The pictures don't do it justice. The pictures don't do it justice. You see, when you, when you come to a picture of something like this, the, the, there, there's something interesting that happens. In, in one sense, this reveals the glory of the arch, doesn't it? You're able to see it. You're able to, to ooh and ah over it. You're, you're maybe even moved to want to go and see it in person and drive and, and do Arches National Park and the whole deal. So, so there's a sense in which this reveals the glory of this arch. But you know there's another sense in which this conceals the glory of the arch? Because you don't actually see the glory. You see it, but you don't really see it. You can be amazed by it, but not really amazed by it. That you come in person, all of a sudden, it looks like there's a natural gateway to God. And a picture can't communicate that. This is exactly how Hebrews understands the Old Testament to be in its revelation of Jesus Christ. 
that, that it's a picture. It's a glimpse. It's a snapshot that reveals the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, the glory of the Messiah. But it's a picture that still conceals the glory of the gospel. Still conceals the glory of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says it like this. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come. A shadow. That what we have in the old covenant is we have shadows of the new covenant that is to come. Shadows of the Jesus that is to be revealed. Shadows of the Savior that we are all to know. Shadows. So what I want us to see this morning is I want us to begin unpacking Leviticus 16 and see the shadows, perhaps the shadows in the highest definition that we find in all of the Old Testament of the coming of Jesus. Now, I need to warn you, like some sermons, and this is the way I prefer are written in your study. Other sermons are written in the shower, all right? This is one of those that was written in the shower. So as we look at this, we're going to skip right over one of the points and only focus on, the, on, on one big one because I just didn't think you'd want to be here that long. Um, and, but we're going to be able to hopefully begin to unpack the, and view and glimpse these, these different shadows. So in Leviticus 16, Leviticus is interesting. So you have five books that Moses has written. We call that the Pentateuch, or the Jews call it uh, the Torah. And that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. We have those five books. So right in the center of those five books is the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus is really the hinge point of the law of Moses. It's the hinge point. It's the crescendo of all that Moses is writing. Not only that, but within Leviticus, Leviticus is made up of 36 speeches. Well, where we come to this morning is the 18th speech. So what we could say is that this chapter, where we are this morning, is literally the linchpin of the law of Moses. It's, a, it's the high point of all that Moses has written. Everything else hinges on it one way or the other. This, this is the peak that we are ascending this morning. And so what I want us to see is in this peak, I want us to see shadows of Jesus. Now, if you're like me and you just like having all the blanks filled in, this is the first blank that we're going to skip right over. Impure priests are shadows of a greater priest. And hopefully you'll see that. You saw it as we read it. But what I want us to see this morning is primarily a big picture, a big picture. And then I want to show you from three different angles, three different shadows, three different ways to, to view it in three different lights, three different perspectives of this one big picture. And that big picture is that insufficient sacrifices are shadows of a glorious Savior. Insufficient sacrifices are shadows of a glorious Savior. Now, the primary problem that the people of Israel are facing has been the same one that we've been facing since Exodus 32 and 33. You remember in Exodus 32, you have the, the, where they bow down and they worship the golden calf. And God says in Exodus 33, well, y'all go ahead. You go into the promised land. You enjoy all the things that I've said that you can have, but my presence will not go with you. Why? When, when they worship the golden calf, do you know what should have happened to them? They should have died. They should have died. When, when you, two people, two parties entered into a, a, a covenant with one another, I remember Andrew covering this on his sermon on Abram and the covenant with Abram. When two parties would enter into a covenant, what they would do is they would slaughter an animal and they would take the parts and they would make two lines out of those parts. And then the two parties of the covenant would walk through those part, animal parts and they were essentially saying, let happen to me what happened to this animal if I break the covenant. And immediately upon ratification of the covenant, what does Israel do? They break the covenant. And so God should kill them. And it is kindness when God says, go on into the promised land, but my presence will not go with you. And of course, what we know is that Moses intercedes on behalf of his people and God relents and he forgives his people and he dwells with his people and he inhabits the tabernacle there in Exodus chapter 40. But the question remains now, how can the presence of God remain in the presence of holy people? 
uh, sinful people? How can a holy God remain in the presence of a sinful people who are going to be in a perpetual state of breaking the covenant? Who are going to be in a perpetual state of lying and envying and worshiping one God over another and making idols and doing all of these? How how is it that uh, a a sinful people can have the holy presence of God remain in there? You can see it even mentioned here at the end of verse 16, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. How can he stay there? And so what, the way I want us to understand this is I want to talk about three big words that we're going to unpack. And hopefully by the end of the day, you'll know what these big words mean. But these are big words, but they're historical words, and they're good words, and they're life-giving words. And these are words that we should know. And those words are imputation, propitiation, and expiation. Imputation, propitiation, and expiation. Now, the first word, and I'm going to write this in red because it's kind of a big deal, that we're going to talk about is imputation. Now, you shouldn't confuse this with amputation. All right? That's some, but actually, thinking about what amputation is can help you understand what imputation may, Maybe it's a word association game in your mind. So, amputation is when we get gangrene in like our pinky or our toes or something, right? And we have to cut them off or we get a severe infection or crushed arm or something. We have, to, we, have to, we have to remove it from the body. We have to remove something that's ours. Well, imputation is actually the opposite of that. Imputation is something that's given to something or someone else because of the actions of another. That it can be something that's credited to you or even something that, that you're charged with that didn't originate with you, that came to you from another source, that came to you from another person. Now, I want you to think about where we see this in our text and how this relates theologically. Okay, so verse 16 says, Thus he shall make atonement. Man, I meant to switch back to yellow. So I make, make atonement for the holy place. For the holy place. Now, let me ask you a question. What do places do wrong? What do places do wrong? Nothing, right? Places are neutral. The holy place has never gossiped. The holy place never never lusted after anyone. The the holy place has never uh, envied anyone. The holy place has never murdered anyone. The holy place has never lied to anyone. So it's interesting when it says that the holy place has to be cleaned, isn't it? it? It's interesting when it says that atonement has to be made on behalf of the holy place as though the holy place was sinful, as though the holy place was unclean. So why is it that we would say that the holy place is unclean? He tells us point blank. He says it's because of the uncleannesses of all the people. Now, remember how we've talked about the threes, right? That when we read in Hebrew, whenever there's a set of three that is emphasized. So there's one version of sin. And then he says not just because of the, the trespass, uncleannesses of the people, but because of the transgressions of the people and their sins. It's getting a little crowded in there. And their sins. So so why is it that the holy place has to be atoned for? The holy place has to be atoned for because the holy place has unholy people that are coming in it constantly and polluting it. That the priests go in there and they pollute it. That the people are offering sacrifices for their sins in there and they're polluted. That they are defiling the presence of the the place where the presence of God is intended to dwell. And because a man goes in there, because, because a sinner goes in there, then it is unfit for the presence of a holy God. So now there is a, there is, it is necessary for atonement to be made on behalf of, of the tabernacle. The tabernacle needs to be purified because it is being charged with the sins of the people. And that, but the picture goes deeper than that. 
If we were to read Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, I just didn't feel like you guys had the stamina for all of that today. But if we were to read Leviticus 11 through 15, it would get a bit PG-13, if you will. You know what I mean? Like, like Maybe not R, maybe even a couple of those chapters might get on the edge of an R rating. But it, it would get pretty edgy at times, pretty uncomfortable at times. It talks about everything from deformities to bodily discharges. Just like It's just weird, right? It's just, just different. And if we're honest, this is where a lot of our reading plans go to die. Leviticus, right? Like you power through Genesis. You're like, man, that was awesome. Praise God. I'm actually going to do it this time. You get to the end of Exodus. You're like, wow, that was 40 chapters, 40 chapters. But that was, you get to bodily discharges and you're like, I'm out. You know what I'm saying? I've been there. I know. I'm out, right? But, but there's a picture that's being, that's being painted there because what God is doing is he's communicating th- something spiritual through ritual. He's communicating something spiritual through ritual. What's interesting about the way, so Leviticus 11 through 15 are talking about those things that make us unclean before God. Those things that make us unclean uh, before and unfit for worship. Unfit to come into the tabernacle. Unfit to, to be in, and to be among. So it tells us how we become unclean. And then it tells us the processes, the rites, the rituals through which we can then be cleaned, right? And so th- what's interesting about those things that make us unclean is when you read them, most of them are things that are not even sinful. But many of them are things that you cannot even help. When you're, it talks about leprosy, I mean, you can't help if you get leprosy or not. It, it talks about uh, birth deformities. It, it talks about bodily discharge. You, you read these things, and, and these are things that a person really can't even do anything about. And yet they make you unclean. The point is not that they make you a sinner. The point is, is that it pictures for you what sin, what happens with sin in your life. The, the point is, is that it's pointing to the nature, the sin nature that is within every single one of them. And it is built into the ritualistic system of Israel so that they are reminded, so that they realize always, perpetually, the nature of sin, the costliness of sin, the pain of sin. So someone that's unclean, they would come into a room, so a leper, for instance. They would come in and they would have to shout, unclean, unclean, unclean. And it was essentially say, don't touch me. Everybody back away. I am a social outcast. I cannot be touched because if you touch me, I will make you unclean. You see, if you're clean and you touch someone unclean, you were imputed, imputed with their uncleanliness. You were credited and charged with their, own, with their uncleanliness. And then you had to go through all of the same rites. If you touched a corpse, you had to go through all these rites because the, the defilement of that death corrupted you. It polluted you. See, there was a, the picture here is that there was a pandemic that way predates COVID-19. There's a pandemic that way predates COVID-19, that we are infected with sin, and being infected with sin, we infect everything that we touch with sin. We are pollutants, and it's a picture of what happened originally with Adam, that all of us have been credited and charged with the original sin that Adam and Eve committed on that first day, and having them committed on their first day, we have received a sin nature that as a result is guilty before Almighty God. And so it puts a craving in our souls, doesn't it? It puts a craving in our souls. It puts a craving in our souls for a time in which there will be no uncleanness. It puts a craving in our soul for a time in which we won't be a pollutant, but instead when we will be pure. It puts a craving in our souls for one who can come and actually make us clean. These 
perpetual rituals can finally find their end. In other words, it's a shadow of Jesus. It's a shadow of Jesus. I want you to think of how Jesus reverses the pictures that we see here in Leviticus. I want you to think about how Jesus reverses this picture of uncleanliness and how cleanliness is transferred from me to you, imputed from Adam to us and from us to others. I want you to think about this. We'll look at just Matthew 8 and 9. So in Matthew chapter 8, there's a man that comes to Jesus and he's a leper. Now think about it. He comes into the presence of Jesus and coming into the presence of Jesus, he has to shout, unclean, unclean. He has to live outside of the city gates. He lives in a colony of people that are just like him. He is a social outcast, unwanted by anyone, untouched by anyone, longing for the day in which he can shake a hand or receive a hug or a kiss on the side of his face. His last-ditch effort is to come to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus. Anyone that touches him, remember, is unclean. I want you to see how Jesus responds. Verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Do y'all see it? No one could touch him. No one would dare touch them. Because if they touched him, they would be unclean. But what is the first thing that Jesus does? Jesus reaches out his hand and says, let me touch you. Let me touch you in your defilement. Let me touch you in your uncleanliness. Let me touch you in your disease. Let me touch you in your desperation. Let me touch you in your brokenness. Let me touch you. And Jesus is not defiled. Jesus is not polluted. The leper is purified. Do you notice what he says? He doesn't say, be well. He doesn't say, be healed. He says what? Be clean. Be clean. Keeps going. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, a, a man comes to Jesus. And he says, my daughter, my daughter has, has died. And you can imagine, man, this is, a, this is a pain. This is a grief that gets into your bones, into your joints, into your soul. Can't even comprehend it. And this little girl, she's gone. Well, no Jew would even go into a house where there was a corpse. And you know what Jesus says? Take me to the girl. Take me to the girl. He comes and people are laughing and mocking and sneering at him because this is such a foolish thing for him to do. He goes up, goes to the, and listen to what happens. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he did what? He took her by the hand. He touched. And the girl arose. The dead doesn't defile Jesus. Jesus raises the dead to life. Do you see the picture? Do you see how Leviticus is craving Jesus? It's giving shadows. It's, it's revealing the glory, but it's concealing it. Within that same picture, as Jesus is on his way in Matthew chapter 8 to go to the girl that's dead, there's a woman with an issue of blood, with a flow of blood that's lasted for more than eight years. For eight years, she's been a social reject. For eight years, she's been cast out by her family. For eight years, no one could even come and use the same furniture as her because if they used the same furniture as her, they themselves would be unclean. So for eight years, this woman has yearned for a touch. This woman has yearned for affection. This woman has yearned for love. So she's right in the middle of a crowd of people that she should never be in the middle of. A crowd of people that she should have scared off with her words, unclean, 
unclean. But there, laying on the ground, she convinces herself, if I can just reach up and I can just touch his garment, if I can just grab the edges of him. Now, if she touches him, he's supposed to be unclean. Her, her filth, her uncleanliness, it should go from her and into Jesus. But do you know what it says? Nothing goes from her to Jesus. It says Jesus stops. And he says, power has went out from me. <laughs> power has went out from me. Listen to what it says. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Jesus isn't made unclean by sinners, church. Sinners are made clean by Jesus. We may have been given sin by Adam, but we are offered perfect righteousness by Jesus. And there is more grace in Jesus than there was sin in Adam, in Eve, in me, or in you. This is imputation. That yes, we have received the nature of Adam, but now that can be displaced in our lives by the nature of Jesus. When it says, for our sake, he made him sin to be no to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God see there are people here this morning and you've been convinced by others that Jesus isn't as good as you as he actually is that you've always heard that Christianity is about not hanging out with those who drink and chew and girls who do and all those kinds of things, right? And so we have this set of stipulations, this set, this set of rules, and then what we do is we build a set of rules around that set of rules, and the goal of that set of rules is to keep us so far away from the original set of rules that we can't even worry about the original set of rules. And so what ends up happening in our lives is we end up walking on eggshells around Jesus, walking on eggshells in the presence of God, walking and waiting until we finally pollute everybody else that's around us and the idea becomes in our minds that I have to just do the best that I can I have to live a morally resolute self-disciplined life and then wherever I fail Jesus will just make up the distance so I get to heaven as fast as I can and as far as I can on my own strength and wherever I can't then Jesus makes up the rest but I'm here to tell you brothers and sisters Jesus is better than that Jesus is better than that Jesus doesn't wait for you to come as far as you can toward him he comes all the way to where you are he goes all the way to your house and to your neighborhood. He comes into your life and into your mess. And your defilement does not scare him away. He makes you clean. He makes you clean. You see, it isn't about what you add. It isn't about what you do. Because you have been credited in your account with perfect righteousness. Credited to your account is the perfect upkeeping of the law. Credited to your account is that of Jesus' account. And you have been credited with him. You don't have to worry about everything else. So now you obey in freedom. You obey in joy. You walk. You walk to the pleasure of God. You don't have to be on eggshells. The Christian life isn't for the morally resolute. It isn't for the self-disciplined. It isn't for the emotionally stabled. It is for the erratic, exhausted, entangled, entrenched sinners who are able to love and savor the goodness of Jesus in the way that the proud never could. There's a second big word that I want you to learn this morning. And that second big word that I want you to learn this morning is the biggest one, propitiation. But it's probably the one that you've heard before, propitiation. 
Now, when I say the word propitiation, what I'm thinking about is in the presence of a judge or in the presence of God even more specifically to have that judge's or God's wrath fully satisfied. That you stand in his presence and, and it's obvious that you're guilty. That, that, that's not the question. The, the question is, is how fully am I going to have to experience his wrath, right? The, the question is, is what degree of God's wrath is going to rain down upon me because God's wrath in my life is an absolute. It is a non-negotiable. It is apparent because I am so defiled in his presence. So propitiation means to have that wrath satisfied on your behalf. It means that, that the wrath of the judge passes on. Now, you'll remember back in our reading that there are two different goats, right? There's, there's a lot of animals thrown at you, all right? So I'm going to help you simplify this. There are two goats that are representative of the people. Two goats. And the high priest would come and he would cast lots. And on one side of the lot would be God. And on the other side of the lot would be Azazel. Azazel means quite literally in Hebrew, the goat that flees. The goat that flees, okay? So the scapegoat. So he would cast the lot between the two goats and he would cast it. And the one that fell, fell on the Lord, that's the one that would be slaughtered. They would take this goat and they would, they would slit its throat and they would let the, the blood pour out of the goat. And then the high priest would take the blood and he would go behind the veil. The only time of the year that he would go, he would go behind the veil. And the veil behind the veil was filled with a cloud of incense that are burning, burning to shield him from the glory of God, burning to shield him and protect him in the presence of one so holy as one who is not holy himself. And he would go, and upon the Ark of the Covenant was what they call the mercy seat or the atonement plate. On that atonement plate, they would pour the blood. They would sprinkle it and sprinkle it and sprinkle it. Seven times they would sprinkle the blood until the atonement plate was ultimately and totally covered. The picture was clear enough. It shouldn't be a goat. It should be them. It should be them. It should be their blood. God's wrath should be coming down upon them. So they would gather around and they would witness and they would stand outside to see whether or not the high priest would come back out. But the point is, is that God is teaching them that another had to suffer in their place, that God would provide a way that his wrath might be satisfied through a substitute. You see, there was a problem with the the blood of the goat. The blood of the goat had no power. The blood of the goat was insufficient. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. I have it on the screen for you. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So what does that tell you? First of all, you have to come do this every year. You have to do this every year. Last year's goat's not sufficient for this year's sins. This year's sins won't, this year's goat won't be sufficient for next year's sins. You have to come do this every year. For it is impossible for the blood of goats to take away sins. They knew it. There are people sometimes that I hear that say this. Well, in the New Testament, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. In the Old Testament, they were saved by the blood of sacrifices. This is, that's a lie. You know why? The Bible says it is impossible for goats to remove sin. 
It's impossible for the blood of an animal to remove sin. These are shadows. These are shadows of a greater provision. These are the cravings, the yearnings of the Old Testament, the yearnings of the incomplete picture for a substitute that would be total and final and ultimate and sufficient. These are the, these are, these are the yearnings and the longings of the Old Covenant that the Lord would send a lamb to be slain that would be final and ultimate and his blood would not be shared upon the atonement plate of an ark, but in the atonement plate, the mercy seat of the heavenly places that's what Hebrews 10 through 14 says listen to what it says and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when Christ had offered an, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The word here is sufficient, sufficient over and over that's the point is that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient in the way that the goat never could one time for all time for the entire church the blood has been spilled of the lamb of Jesus Christ and poured upon the atonement plate the shadows they were sh- the, the sacrifices they were they were, were insufficient they were shadows but the savior he is sufficient See, one of the things that I found through counseling, one of the things I found in my own life, is that for most of us, there's a big screen in our minds, and we watch on that big screen a continual reel on, on loop, one time after another, the lowlights of our lives. We watch our worst moments. We think of our darkest sins, our biggest failures, our gravest disappointments. And we put those lowlights on loop in our minds so that we're constantly not allowing ourselves to get too high. So that we're constantly beating ourselves down and sabotaging our, our own joy. And I think the thinking goes something like this. That if I don't, even as a child of God, even as a child of God, that if, if I don't beat myself down, then the judgment of God is going to be even greater in my life. The wrath of God is going to be even greater than in my life. So I'm going to make sure that I invite misery. I'm going to make sure that I invite shame. And I'm going to make sure that I invite humiliation. And as a child of grace, that is you living in an economy of karma. That if I can just pay down some bad stuff in my life, good stuff will come. It'll prevent other bad things from happening. But do you know what this tells us, y'all? God may discipline his children for their own good, but God never penalizes his children. Do you know why? Jesus has paid the penalty in full. He has paid the penalty in full full. You don't have to worry about the wrath of God coming into your life. You don't have to worry about the first drip of the wrath of God being poured upon you. You're not getting a little, a little wrath or a smidge of wrath or a shred of wrath because Jesus Christ has drank the wrath to the dregs. He has drank every last drop on your behalf. He is the propitiation for you before Almighty God. His blood is covering the mercy seat so you know what that means you don't have to beat the heck out of yourself anymore you walk in freedom you walk in joy you walk taking pleasure in the almighty because Jesus is sufficient for the low lights of 
your life. That brings us to the final big word that I want you to see this morning, and that is the word expiation. Expiation. For some reason, that's the most awkward one for me to say. Expiation. So if we think about this in the context of the judge again, so propitiation is when the wrath of the judge has been satisfied. Expiation is when the judge grants you an unconditional pardon. It's when all of your guilt has been removed. It's when, when before God, God doesn't just say, my, my wrath is satisfied. He says, no, you, you, you are clean. You are holy. You are righteous. That God here has the second goat, right? You have the lots and you cast and you have, and, and so the picture is, is they take the second goat, this az, that, the one that's Azazel, the one that is to, to flee from them, the, the scapegoat. And I want you to notice what it says. He lays both hands. He lays both hands upon it. Now that's a big deal, okay? So ordinarily, when he was just doing one for himself, he would lay one hand on it and he would slit the throat. He would do the, but here, he takes this goat and he lays both hands upon the head of the goat. And the picture is, is that he is taking all of the sins for the entire corporate body of the people of God and he is laying them upon the head of the goat. And then one of the priests, one of the other priests would take the goat and they would go 12 miles outside of the camp. 12 miles. They would march this goat that's bearing the weight of the, all the sin of Israel. They would go outside of the camp and all, through all the crowd, all the people, through much, much fanfare. And they would go outside of, and, and they would run him off and let him loose and run him off. And the, the priest would sit there and he would watch until this goat was completely out of sight. Then he would come back and he would report that our sins are gone. Our sins are gone. The Lord has removed them from our midst. The Lord has removed them from us. And the picture here is that God isn't merely overlooking their sin. God is removing their sin. They aren't to be counted against them anymore. They aren't to be marked against them. This isn't God just turning his head. This is God removing from his people all of their pollutants and all of their defilements so that now in his presence they are pure as snow. And it's a picture. It's a picture of the Messiah that was to come. Do you remember what it says in Isaiah 53? In Isaiah 53, we have that, that suffering servant, that, that foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. It says in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone away. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that same suffering servant would come as Jesus and it would be said of him, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed that God himself reaches down from heaven and lays both of his hands upon the head of Jesus. And upon the head of Jesus he lays the sin of every one of us, all of our shame, all of our embarrassment, all of our wickedness, all of our defiled thoughts, all of our corrupt way of living. He lays all of it upon the head of Jesus and it removes it from us and lays it upon us so that now, now in the presence of God, now before one who is holy and in our midst, we are clean. Our sins have been removed. I wonder this morning if you feel dirty. I wonder this morning if you feel dirty. I don't know what kind of sins and secret sins you have in your life, but I wonder if some of you, maybe last night even, you laid awake at night while your family slept and you thought about, you thought about the secrets that you're keeping all by yourself. Maybe you were pregnant and you aborted the child. 
and you've thought about it for years and years and years. Maybe you have a secret affair. Nobody knows, not even your husband. But you know, and you carry the weight of it every day, and you come to church week in and week out, and you can hardly even find praise in your heart because you just feel dirty. I wonder if you have a secret pornography addiction. I wonder if you've lied and betrayed the people that, are, that you love the very most and you're continuing to compound that lie with another lie because you have to keep the cover and everywhere that you go, you're trying to keep up with the lie and you just, you just feel dirty. Look, if that's you, here's the offer. And it's not a new age innovation. It's not some Johnny-come-lately offer. It's something that dates back more than 3,000 years all the way back to Leviticus chapter 16. It is that if you will come to Jesus, if you will come to the substitute that God has provided, if you will abandon yourself and your life and your misery and your good works for the sake of Jesus, he will remove from you your guilt. He won't just overlook it. He won't just take care of most of it and leave some for you to be ashamed about. He won't endure just most of the penalty. He will remove it all. Every last scratch of filth in your life. He will remove and wipe every ounce of it clean so that what the psalmist says in Psalm 103 will be true of you for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west so far does he remove the transgressions from us. You see there are two types of people this morning. There are two types of people that are here this morning. There are some of you and Jesus has removed your sin. You feel dirty because you continually replay the low lights in your mind. And what I want you to be this morning is I want you to be set free in Christ. I want you to enjoy the fullness and rest in his forgiveness because he is better than you think he is. He is more forgiving than you think he is. He is more sufficient than you believe he is. And there's another group of people, those who can be, those who can have their sins removed, those who can experience the fullness of his forgiveness. And I don't know what, who Jesus has been painted up to you about. I don't know what picture of him you've seen, what shadow of him, what version of him that you know. But this is the version of the Bible, that if you will come to him, that you don't have to have yourself together. You don't have to try to get yourself as close to him on your own as you can. You can come as you are and be washed clean. Be washed clean. And so this morning, I implore you, I plead with you, I've prayed for you. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to this one that has stood in your stead. Come to this one that has drank the wrath of God to the dregs. Come to this one that has offered himself on your behalf. Come to this one and he, he will do the fixing in your life. Let me pray to the Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 